Hello, and welcome to the Culture We Speak podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Anik Holbis of the Roman Catholic Education Authority, Rodrigue Mauritius. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. During today's episode, we'll be using some terms that may be less familiar to those who do not have a background in linguistics. The first term is pidgin. This term is used to refer to a linguistic code that emerges when speakers of different languages need to communicate. One definition I found suggested that this is particularly true for commerce, but I'm going to say that this is particularly true for colonizing. A pidgin can evolve into a creole. The second term is creole, and you'll hear this term more frequently during today's discussion. A creole is typically thought of as a pidgin that is learned as a mother language. In other words, a creole is established when a pidgin is passed down to another generation for communication in day-to-day life. A creole is the primary language of the descendants of pidgin speakers, you know, the ones that were colonized. As we discuss issues relating to language and identity, I'd like for you to consider how the ongoing invalidation and subordination of a group's language impacts that group's identity and culture. What do these linguistic practices suggest about power and what might the impact be on the identities of pidgin and Creole speakers? Finally, how does this relate to the work that I do around African-American English in the Respect the Dialect online community? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anik Tolbis. Dr. Anik Tolbis lived in Minnesota in the U.S. for five years while completing her PhD in educational psychology. She has been living and working on the island of Rodrigue, her home island in the Republic of Mauritius, which is found in the Indian Ocean. She's been there since 2012. She currently works as a manager and training coordinator for the Roman Catholic Education Authority, Rodrigue, primarily applying response to intervention to set up services to support struggling learners in the area of reading and English as a second language. She is married and is a mom of three young children. Welcome to The Culture We Speak. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you taking the time out, especially with the time difference between us. So <laughs> what time is it there? It's uh, nine o'clock, 9 p.m. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, so it's a little later for you. So we'll try to keep this relatively short so you can go to bed. But I wanted you first to just start off with sharing a little bit about your own cultural linguistic background. So I am from Rodrigues Island in the Republic of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And I grew up speaking Creole. So the Creole that's typical of this region. And I have learned since that it's really the Creole of Rodrigues Island, of the east side of Rodrigues Island. You know, not everybody speaks Creole the way I do. But Creole not being, we've had this debate even until recently, is it a language, is it not a language? So all of us have to learn to speak French at some point when we start formal education. And then because English is our official language, you also have to learn to, to speak English. So in terms of languages, this is how we, we function. So we, we grow up speaking Creole, but then we end up speaking like those two other languages. So very language rich environment. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely a very beautiful location that I look at regularly and imagine myself in. Um, but in terms of your acquiring English and French, does that happen when you get to school or when does that learning 
American? In my case, the English and French, it started, I think, before formal education, because, you know, even though we were speaking Creole, especially in the 1980s when I was growing up, we were we didn't have a lot of contact with people from Mauritius or from abroad. So our French was really, the radio was in French and the TV we were watching was in French. So we got a lot of French from the media. But the English really started when I started formal education. But I'm looking at my kids now and, you know, they're like five years old and they watch a lot of YouTube and they have like more English vocabulary. You know, some of the words they're saying in English now, like I didn't learn those until I was like 10 years old when I was growing up. So I think for this generation, there's a lot of the English and French that's happening before formal education. And now you also have parents who are going to be like speaking in French to their kids, which when I was growing up, you know, was not really the case. But yeah, so how we learn languages is changing. Can you outline a little bit the work that you're currently doing in Mauritius? It's going to be hard to summarize, but, you know, we started this project to set up special education services for kids. When I first started, you know, like fresh out of grad school, I started this job as manager of the RCEA. That's the Roman Catholic Education Authority. And I started this job and, you know, we did not have any special education services in the mainstream schools. I don't know, like luckily, (laughs) for some reason, that same year, the European Union had a call for proposal and I submitted one for, you know, and got a grant to start special education. So that's like in 2000, end of 2012. And we started working to just set up services. But since I think 2017, we've been trying to find somebody to provide speech services and unsuccessfully. So until, you know, like two years ago, when finally I was like, oh, let's try Facebook. <laughs> let's try Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you <laughs> did. That's, though. How, that's how we met. <laughs> And yeah, so we've been trying to, you know, like through our collaboration, we've been trying to actually set up, find a way of actually providing speech services to the kids in our schools. And we got this grant last year where we're actually trying to use the whole logic of RTI to just, you know, make sure that the majority of kids get services. And because it's expensive, you know, like collaborating. I love collaborating with you, but we don't really have grant money, you know, for projects or services like that. So we've been lucky to get research money from the MRIC for this project. So basically what we're doing is we're using the whole RTA approach. So we're screening kids and then we're kind of like, you're looking at the data. And from that, we're just delivering like what I would call tier two interventions. And hopefully we'll be able to reach the majority of kids through the tier two interventions and then have just a very small number of kids who will need, you know, more intensive services. And so far, we've been looking at the data today. So, so far, you know, like a lot of kids are actually reacting to what we've been doing, but there are, my God, like some kids where it is clear that we need more. But yeah, this is what we're doing. Like currently what we're doing in the area of speech and language is just trying to provide services to to the kids in our school. Because of your location and the linguistic information you've shared, it's probably quite challenging to find people who can support sort of a multitude of languages. I know it's been a learning curve for me even, you know, I speak French and English, but Mm -hmm. then I have to figure out this Rodrigan Creole, which is a little challenging at times. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) has that been one of the barriers that you're facing in finding service? In part, yes. But at the same time, I think the whole field of speech pathology is not well known in Mauritius because checking for specialists on the island 
And there are very few Fijian language pathologists even on Mauritius. So in general, I think most people don't know because unfortunately, I would say that we're still in at this stage where, you know, a child doesn't know how to speak. So the child, this is how he is. So it's not something that you intervene on. A child cannot write or cannot walk. That's how he is, which is a good thing in a way because we accept people the way they are. But there's a lot of things we could be doing to help. But yeah, the language is definitely a big issue though, because even if somebody from here, would go and study, you know, speech pathology. I mean, like, you don't have the courses on Mauritius, for example. So they would have to go and study abroad. And I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to get a program that's going to take into consideration the fact that the native language is going to be Creole and not English or French, for example. Yeah, it is definitely challenging, the whole picking Creole as a native language part. So I think you've kind of answered the challenges and barriers that you've encountered in the work that you're doing. <laughs> I think that covers that question. So I would say the next question I have for you is how does language legitimacy play a role in the educational experience of youth there? Oh, my God. This is such a huge question because, you know, when I started, like 2012, when I started, Creole was being introduced in the schools as a formal subject. So there was like all this debate about it's not a language, it is a language, it's not a language. It was happening there and then. And to this day, there's there's still resistance, you know, to the teaching of Creole and the learning of Creole in the schools because it's the reason is always like we already know how to speak Creole without really understanding that literacy and just like oral language is not the same thing. Or, you know, we're getting this question of like, why should we be studying Creole? Like, how is it useful? Why not just study English and French? And I'm like, why are we even still asking these types of questions at this point? Because, I mean, it's not even, it's, first, it's a question of rights. You know, it's your native language. You have a right to like learn to read and write and like think in that language. But at the same time, just knowing like there's a little knowledge of like how, you know, like your L1 impacts like the learning of all the other languages. But nobody seems to ask this question of like, why is it that, for example, in France, nobody questions the fact that you're going to be studying in French. But for some reason, you know, like for us, it's like, you have to study French because you're going to get a job with it later. You have to study English because with English, you're going to get a job. That's true. But you have to also, you know, like learn your native language. And to this day, like we started at the schools that I managed, it wasn't my choice. You know, it's like the government is like, okay, we're introducing Creole, you're doing Creole. So we didn't really have a say in whether or not we wanted to do it, but we stuck with it. Like we started in 2012 and we're still doing it. Whereas, for example, I won't say the names of the schools just in case, but you know, like after two years, they stopped. And when it was time for Creole to kind of like, for the kids who had been doing Creole at primary level to go to secondary school, they did not have this option because, again, I don't want to get certain things, you know, online. But it was like the idea behind it was to just stop the teaching of Creole because it was viewed as not being important. And I think luckily, at least on Mauritius, you have this whole Creole speaking union. There's this professor, I don't know if you know about him, his name is Arukapova, and he's been like, you know what's the word I'm looking for here I mean I'm looking for the word he's like the the, the Creole activist in a way and okay. he's been working with the government to actually ensure that Creole gets offered as an examinable subject at you know what we call the SC which is it's not the terminal diploma for us it's like 
the honor the, we have this honor level and then advanced level so like right now because of the work they've been doing kids are like children who are interested in studying creole up to grade so that's grade 11 i think yet yeah, up to grade 11 they can do so and like their grades will appear on the, their transcript so they had to like go and argue you know for this to become accepted yeah. and yeah it's just and I just think it's sad how we, you know, like so many people just kind of don't want to acknowledge the fact that this is your native language. And so you can study other languages, but you have to actually study your native language as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to validate that in the educational spaces. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but some of the work that I do centers African-American English, which is a dialect mm-hmm. of English some perceive and some qualify it as a language here in the U.S. And I do a lot of work around supporting the validity of that, but I can't imagine having it be recognized in the way that you're saying Creole has mm-hmm. been recognized, which is wonderful, yeah. but you're still far from the mark even in Creole, you know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like, yeah. how much work do we have to do to actually create space for these languages and to say that they are actually mm-hmm. valid and legitimate and that they deserve exactly. to be recognized. And, yeah. and I, you know, we can get into like racial implications, class implications, of course, as to why mm-hmm. certain languages yeah. are are received and um, mm-hmm. perceived as valid and others are not. And it's really frustrating. Yeah. So It is. And I think it's, you know, that just speaks to the importance that's given to the language that it's an optional subject, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not yeah. even, yeah, mainstream, like everybody has to do it. Everybody needs to know how to write in it. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, there's work to be done. And the strange thing is that you have all the kids now, you have so many kids now who who know how to speak and read, I mean, read and write Creole. And then you have adults who still kind of, you know, write any way they want. And the kids are like, ha, 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 look at how you're writing it because it's not correct now. But yeah, it's, I don't know. There's like a lot of work to be done with the adult generation, I think, because for the kids, they just love it. You know, it's something that they're familiar with. It's, they can do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it validates their mm-hmm. identity. When they mm-hmm. arrive exactly. in school, it's smart to be yeah. speaking Creole. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's so important. Yeah. So the next question I have is what are the benefits of living and working in a multilingual setting? And how oh. does multilingualism benefit your students? I, you know, I've been trying to think about this and not, you know, like the theoretical answers, but really thinking in terms of our realities. And, you know, one of the, one of the, advantages it's been true for me for example but i say it for a lot of our young people who when they finish high school because sometimes we do get scholarships like i got a scholarship at the end of high school and you have the option of studying like anywhere in the world where that you can afford on the the scholarship and a lot of us are able to go in english-speaking countries because you know we speak creole but like we also speak english but you also have a lot of people who are able to like make the switch to the french system because even though our whole education system is in english because they speak french as well they're able to like study in in french setting for example i think that's like in practice this is one of the biggest advantages but then i also find that living in this environment where you have english and french like it opens you, it opens you up to like just thinking that's totally normal to just like be exposed. That everybody in the world is just like as open as you are in terms of accepting other cultures, accepting other languages. I think it, it gives us a real openness in a way because 
the fact that we're not gonna like, oh, this is our language, this is how we are. We're just, I think, a little maybe too open to accepting like <laughs> the influence of everything else. <laughs> it's yeah. like the yeah, it's the reverse. But like for us, it's just like everything. You know, there's no there's no kind of like clear boundary in a weird way. I notice this with like almost everything that like there's no set rules. Every, everything is like fluid. You can move wherever you are, which yeah. is it can be good, it can be bad. But yeah, I find that we're like not very. <laughs> we don't have boundaries in a, in a yeah. weird way. It's yeah. not regimented, like maybe mm-hmm. for instance the United States. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, people are a lot more rigid about how language is uh-huh. used, where language is used, what spaces mm-hmm. you can enter into. Yeah, I find that honestly, to me, it's fascinating that you would say that it's really just boundless. For me, mm-hmm. I feel that it's restrictive. You know, there's just certain mm-hmm. spaces where I am expected to speak in a certain way, or other spaces I'm allowed, quote unquote, mm-hmm. or it's tolerated that I speak in a different way. And I don't like that. That is kind of the attitude here. No, but. What you say, I recognize what you're saying though, because for example, you know, you I find this less true on Rodrigues that like for instance, if you go to Mauritius in Mauritius, for example, because in on Mauritius, there's places you would go in and you know you have to speak French because you kind of feel like you're being looked at really strangely if you're speaking, you know, in Creole, or even if you're if it's noticed that your Creole is like from Rodrigues and not like a Creole from Mauritius or all. So I do notice that like the yeah, there are places that you just don't speak Creole because otherwise it's like it's not just the language, it's the it's the background, it's the education level that's reflected on you. So yeah. Oh even Do you think like, that that's an accurate you... reflection though? So is that an accurate reflection that that's your education level if you speak in Creole? No, but there's still this perception that people who speak Creole are uneducated, though, you know, because I think increasingly, like, if you go into some schools in Mauritius, again, in Rodrigues, like, you don't get that. Like, we're just like, oh, we're speaking our Creole <laughs> everywhere, I think. But if you go in some, like, especially the schools in the cities, in the towns, like the towns, the kids will be speaking just French. You know, like, they'll be coming in because they come from these backgrounds where they're speaking French at home so you have the Creole kids but like there's this joke I don't know if it's a joke but you have like the Creole with the C and the Creole with the K so the Creole with the K are like I think two Creole who just speak Creole I think the Creole with the C are a little bit more upper class in a way if you if you wish or maybe I've understood it more because I don't I've never really lived on Mauritius but Mm -hmm. there are sort of like misperceptions of of how Creole I mean, Creole is, is still perceived as, you know, the whole idea that it's not a real language. So if you're educated, you speak French or your Creole is like more pure, more French, closer to French, for example. The, you know, the I understand all this, it's the same, the yeah, same attitudes yeah, here. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm making faces at you um, during this Zoom <laughs> call because, because I'm thinking that it's very similar to what I see here. You know, the assumption mm-hmm. is that I'm not educated if I speak in African American English, despite you and myself having the PhD behind our names. Exactly. It's, yeah. We're less educated if we switch to that language or that, that mm-hmm. dialect or code. Yeah. And it's very interesting that we lose all of our intelligence suddenly mm-hmm. just by speaking in a different way. You know, exactly. Yeah. And I noticed that, for example, the way I speak Creole, like I speak Creole, I have this weird Creole. Like I code switch a lot. 
But then, you know, like I mixed a lot of French with it. But then when I speak purely Creole, it's like very Creole. And so it's just, I notice some reactions. For example, when I'm speaking like Creole, not code switching at all. Like it's kind of like, mm. that's a little yeah. bit kind of like, a little bit not as refined <laughs> as it could be. Like I've never been able to be those people who can who speak like this refined Creole, but like it's not French, but for some reason it sounds really close to French. Like I don't speak Creole like this. It's like I'm either going to be code switching or I'm going to be speaking French or I'm going to be speaking Creole. But it's not this sort of my Creole is just not <laughs> this really weird refined. <laughs> it's not like but I notice some reactions, for example, when I speak Creole the way I speak Creole. Unfortunately, I think this is what happens when you have those languages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, those stereotypes and classes or racist notions about who can speak what and where mm -hmm. those languages belong and which mm -hmm. languages actually get prestige attached to them and which ones are sort of denigrated. So all of that is a very complex situation. But I think that it's, I see it commonly across settings. So this isn't something that's unique to your location, my location. I see it mm -hmm. in many of my travels. I've seen like, the same phenomenon happening yeah. and it's very unfortunate yep yeah i think we, we love to classify people right we, for some reason we love this like having somebody who's better somebody who's less than or things like that to reinforce that yeah so what are some ways that we can validate the language that students bring to school and why is it important to do so well i I think that is just, you know, just accepting how, how kids speak, you know, the languages they bring. I would say like the only thing that you would correct with what a kid brings is if it's, you know, the language is, is hurtful or it's insulting somebody. But if you have an accent, which, or like a different way of saying things, we shouldn't, I think we should stop with this notion that there's only one way of being, one way of saying things, one language, one way of speaking that's better than another just yeah it's, it's really just welcome kids with what what they bring because i like the whole point of school is just to help kids you know get their voices but kind of like shut them down and like make them do this something they're not i, I don't want to make them into something they're not but like tell them there's something wrong with them with what they're bringing this is the message that sometimes when you were kind of like you know, you're having kids that are coming in with Creole, for example, and then it's like, ah, oh, in school we don't speak Creole. But I find that we're lucky again. I don't know if it's lucky, but like for this generation of young teachers that they're very comfortable with Creole. And so they welcome kids with the Creole they, they bring. I would say that, yeah, on Rodrigues in, in a weird way, I don't know if I'm idealizing it in a weird way because like, well, it's more, it doesn't have the, the sort of melting pot it's not the melting pot that Mauritius is because like the island is mostly Creole so people like the young generation actually, like is becoming very comfortable with you know speaking Creole and being how they are I like how they're just kind of like very comfortable with who they are and how they are but I think it's how we promote that. acceptance in the future because essentially what will happen is they're identifying themselves and they find validity in who they are, their identity mm -hmm. is fully embraced, then they're mm -hmm. able to embrace other people. So it's mm -hmm. not being treated yeah. that I should be seeing myself as less than our specific groups of people as less mm -hmm. than now I can just accept. There's linguistic mm -hmm. variety, there's diversity in language and culture, mm -hmm. and that's okay. And so I feel like I feel like it's a move in the right direction. I wonder mm -hmm. how long that shift will take societally but mm -hmm. i think that it's a move in the right direction 
I would say I love it. I would kind of like wanted to be able to be more disciplined in a way because I still <laughs> find that, you know, we're comfortable with being who we are. Like it's a little bit too much sometimes. There's, there's sort of like a lack of discipline because at some point you need to kind of like do the work that you need to do. But I really love this confidence that this generation has that we didn't really grow up having, you know, kind of grew up with people telling us there's something wrong with you. That's <laughs> what I wonder is, is yeah. that why your perspective is that way though? So I have to check myself a lot of times because uh-huh. I'm like, I have certain expectations for certain spaces. You know, this is what I've mm-hmm. been taught and this is how I mm-hmm. had to do it. And I feel yeah. like after being in school forever mm-hmm. and owing plenty in student loans, I think that after going through school <laughs> for such a long time that you either learn to turn around and force someone else to do what you did, or you mm-hmm. learn to sort of say, I shouldn't have had to do all of the things that I had to do to get to where I am. And so I feel like that's the conflict sometimes because we've been taught, you know, for so many years, we've been taught this is the way, right? This is the only way. Mm -hmm. This is the way it has to happen. And then when we get there, it's kind of like, I could have done this. You know, there there are other ways I could arrive here, essentially. Yeah. And that's where I find myself thinking about this. That's sort of my experience and my Mm -hmm. perspective on it. It's like, do I have everybody else or encourage everyone else to do what I did? Or do I encourage them to be themselves and authentically get to do this? That's the hard part. So (laughs) that again is my take on that. (laughs) I would say for me, I don't necessarily expect everybody to do what I did because I think that the choices I made were very hard. You know, I don't expect anybody to kind of like leave and go somewhere else you know, to become what they wanted to become in a way. Because like, what do you think about it? For example, like, and for example, I look at all of my cohort. I mean, they were like all from the Midwest. You know, they just like drove, <laughs> they drove to the school and they had like their lives were just there was I left my life behind, moved and then came back. And it, I don't really expect people to make the same choices, but I do. I mean, I like people being, like the young generation thinks they're authentic and happy with who they are. But at the same time, I feel like, oh, grow up and become an adult as well because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just, oh, we're young, we're carefree, we don't have any responsibilities. It's like, who is going to do to do all this work that needs to be done at the same time? So I think that's more how I'm thinking. Like at some point, somebody does need to, to do the work and it's great that you're having all this, this yeah. being young and whatever, but yeah. yeah, but invest in what you're headed into. When did you realize, since you just mentioned coming over here and to the U.S. Mm-hmm. to do your studies in the Midwest, those bad Midwesterners, I'm teasing because I'm a Midwesterner <laughs> too, but, <laughs> but coming to the U.S. to learn and to do all that, you know, you had to do in terms of your educational career. When did you realize that your culture or language was different from the quote unquote mainstream? I mean to say when I took this course called culturally relevant pedagogy and actually no, like being in educational psychology and being like the only brown black person in a very white environment, you know, like one of the first things, like I grew up thinking, oh my God, I speak like three languages, it's so wonderful, you know, like I always felt really proud of it. And then you're in like educational psychology and school psychology, and that's a risk factor. <laughs> and being told that. Yeah, not speaking English at home is a risk factor, for example. And, you know, I kept hearing like all the things. There were so many things that like made me me that like in various and psych classes I would hear were like risk factors or. So finally I kind of got tired of and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go into, I think 
it was curriculum and instruction. So I took this course called Cultural Relevant Pedagogy. And we were like reading all, you know, like the Ogbus and the sort of like, I forgot what it was for. Oh my God. Yeah, the voluntary and involuntary minority, like how Black, you know, like Black students navigate white spaces and all these things. And this is where I kind of like learned the term, you know, other, to be othered and like normative whiteness and all these things. And suddenly I was like, oh my God, like so many things, you know, like things are not making sense because I had felt a lot of these, but it was just like finally being able to name what I had been feeling and what I had been going through. I was like, for me, I always kind of felt, I would say, no, that's not true. I wouldn't say I always felt different. I think I never realized I was viewed as being different because I was kind of like, I was fine with being who I was, but it was like little by little you know, realizing that, yeah, I'm perfect. I'm finding where, how I am, but like the way I'm being seen, I'm being kind of like put in those boxes that I'm not comfortable being because that's not my history. For example, like I remember I was about to go to internship and I wanted to go to New Orleans at the time. And my advisor was like, oh yeah, you know, like they're going to love you down there because, you know, that I don't know if he said because I was black or something like that. And I was like, and I know he meant it like from a, it was a good thing from his perspective. And I, and I remember saying, but I'm not American, you know? So, because for like, I noticed this working in Minneapolis public schools that all the kids were black, for example, or, but I still couldn't relate to them because it wasn't just about skin color. It was really mm-hmm. about having the same culture and like understanding each other's culture. But it was very kind of like, I think it, like living in the Midwest was in a way very difficult. And I remember like being in some of my classes and always asking the question, like, how do I relate to like, you know, to like white, white students as, you know, like somebody from minority background. And I'm asking this, like this room of like very white people from the Midwest who had like no idea how to, how to answer me. And I got to this point where I was like, you know, like they cannot give me an answer because they don't know. It's not their they don't have their to experiences. Know. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have to know. Yeah. They don't have to know. So it was, I think like for me, like putting a name and like realizing that I was othered was really like when I did that, when I took that class, culturally relevant pedagogy, but like the experience was, you know, I had lived that, that experience of kind of like, who am I really? Like, what is my background? Am I black? Am I like, I remember like one day my supervisor from my graduate research assistantship was filling this because they had to like fill in some administrative forms of like, how many graduate students they were hired, they were employing and like what were the ethnicities that she put me down as Asian. And I'm like, okay, like how is she saying, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, how are people like defining you? And it was really kind of like for me living in the US was the time when I really had to like figure out who I was culturally because it was like, that thing was, it was always there. I was always kind of like being pushing something that like having people try to define me in a way that, you know, it's like, that's not who I am. Or I'm not, I'm not sure I'm like that. I don't even know where this is coming from. So yeah. So this is when I kind of like figured out I was like being Creole. Like I've always known I was Creole, but like I never really paid attention to what that meant to finally go, ah, okay, this is like what this identity means and why it means what it means. It's a very interesting journey. And that's part of the reason I asked that question. It's just because people are recognizing it at different times, even those who are living in the U.S. you know, only and mm-hmm. haven't necessarily gone abroad or may, may never go abroad. 
they mm-hmm. recognize it at different times. You enter into a space and suddenly there's something, right, that you're confronted with. And what is that mm-hmm. something that tells you that you either don't belong, you don't mm-hmm. quite fit into that space? Something about who you are is not quote unquote acceptable in that mm. in that space. And so it can be pretty, you know, disturbing. I've I've had um guests on the show who talk about it early in life. I've had people I've talked mm-hmm. to who are saying it happened later in life, you know. So it's kind of fascinating to me to kind of see when was that sort of moment where mm-hmm. you had that difficulty and think about the struggle you had with that language around it at the age that you were when you were going through it, right? And just imagine that happening to five-year-old or to yeah, you know, a 10-year-old who really can't conceive of that information won't have courses necessarily that support that and mm-hmm. may not meet educators or other professionals who look like them to sort of reflect some of that information or, you know, and that identity that yeah. they're bringing. It's very hard and it's very isolating. Many people who, who are not other don't have to consider it. Yeah, exactly. And that, and I think it was kind of like, I honestly think it was annoying that I kept asking these questions like, oh my God, there she goes again. But it was like, for me, it's it. a genuine professional question because it's like how I'm like this person from this different culture. I look the way I do. I sound the way I do. And how do I kind of like seem legitimate or relate to these people who I don't, I don't really understand your lived experience. You know, like how do I relate to these people? To me, it was, it was a professional question. But I think like this being, I don't know the US or the Midwest, you know, you're asking a question about race or. <laughs> I think you brought, you said to the people you came to learn today, you're going to learn something today. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I think it's well. good. I, I mean, asking that question and, and handing it back to those who sort of perpetuate that system, I think is an effective way of saying, hey, what is this that we're doing? You know, what is, what is mm. going on? And having them really stop and think about how they're upholding certain notions and how are they reinforcing those notions and where have they been complicit and where maybe are they not, you know? And how does mm. how do they navigate that space? Because we can't make changes in these things without everybody on board. You know, we can't make changes without people realizing that they mm-hmm. they too are contributing to a system, even if they choose to ignore that system. They're contributing to yeah. it. So yeah. I say go for the questions. I wish I could have been in your class. So uh, how did you you sort of learn to embrace and celebrate that difference? I don't know. I think I just kind of like I would say I became really quiet. You know, it was something up first I was like really trying like to understand and like reach out to a lot of people and then I became really quiet and I would say we've drawn but I kind of like suddenly found this sort of peace because I kind of realized okay this is who I am this is how I am and it's okay if others don't understand but it wasn't kind of like trying to feed it anymore and I remember this term again from those readings from culturally relevant language it's kind of like this sort of being the comforter when you're in this space where there are like white people and people of color at some point, if something happens to you, like as brown black people, it's like, oh no, that's not my. Like I don't, I stopped doing that. I was just like, okay, that's not my role anymore. To just, you know, like be this person who's going to make you feel okay about things that you shouldn't feel okay about. And that you know, part so, right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like just became like a lot more kind of like at peace with that part. But I don't know if I'm celebrating my difference. I'm just kind of, I am who I am. I am what I am. Although I would say that I felt really happy when I finally kind of like discovered that what it meant to be Creole in a way, because I, I never really thought about it. To me, it was just like, I was just this person. And it really made me happy, though, to kind of like finally be able to define, like find an identity and a space that was mine, that was kind of like this borrowed identity because you know growing up here again like this 
this whole being Creole and an island and having like all these influences. Like you grew up thinking you're like so many different things. I remember like the first time I had this notion that, okay, I'm not so many things. Like my undergrad, I got a scholarship and so I chose to go to Australia because I wanted to go to Sydney Olympics and not because I wanted to go to any specific university. I wanted to be able to go to the Olympics. But, yes. you know, like doing <laughs> psychology in undergrad, we had to take all these experiments. And I remember having to complete a survey of what was our identity. And, you know, I'm writing this down. And like the first identity I write down is French and then African and then like so many other things, but never, you know, never Rodriguez, never Creole. It was like, it was not even something I defined myself as. It was, we just had like so many, like, I think a lot of us do that too, because when I came back here, I remember like from the US, I remember I don't know what we were doing, but I remember somebody trying to define ourselves for some reason. And I remember saying, we're Creole, because I was like, yeah, I've discovered my identity, we're Creole. I grew up with, you know, like having watched so much French TV and you watch the Olympics, for example, and it's like narrated by the French. So you're like on the French team, you're like very, very French in a weird way. And I grew up like reading, you know, you watch so much American TV that you think you're American and like reading so much American, so many American novels. But then you realize that even if you understand uh, things about the culture, this is not who you are. You're looking at the ways in which you've taken on other things and kind of falsely identified with that. And I think it's very easy mm -hmm. to do. It happens mm -hmm. here all the time. Mm -hmm. And we're taught to assimilate. We're taught to be sort of fit into spaces that are not made for you, that were created without you in mind, because you were, you know, in my case, in chattel slavery, right? So mm -hmm. it wasn't yeah. even considered as a space that you would ever enter into. But now you're you're mm -hmm. forced to navigate these spaces. And so I think that picking mm -hmm. up other cultures is quite valid and, and is challenging at times to celebrate who you are when, again, you're not seeing that reflected. And so mm -hmm. through our education, our curriculum, is our curriculum a window to look in on some other people? Or is it mm -hmm. more of a mirror that allows me to see myself and to understand who I am and to continue on my journey? And a lot mm -hmm. of times we're looking in at other people's experience and we're expected to be fluent in that experience without mm -hmm. ever considering our own perspective. So it's mm. easy to pick up other cultures and other ideas and identities because yeah. I'm, I'm being erased in the, you know, in this process. Yeah. So what you said makes sense to me. I mean, okay. it resonates with me. Everything you said <laughs> okay. resonates with me. So. <laughs> oh my God. We have like so much work in the way to do on ourselves and like people surround us too. A lot, right? But you're the psychologist. Yeah. I'll let you do it. I'll just help them talk. <laughs> <laughs> that identity part, you're articulating my experience very well. Do you have any advice or final thoughts for the audience regarding education and advocacy for culturally and linguistically diverse populations? Now I'm thinking about my education system. Yeah, we still have this Cambridge exam, the international exam. And that makes me like, so mad, especially with COVID, that's made me so mad because, you know, like, for example, in England, the students were allowed to not sit for their final exams. But like, for some reason, I was so attached to the system that we changed the school calendar twice <laughs> to allow kids to sit on these international exams when you can very well have like a national exam here. That's, that's valid by, for your country. You don't need to be validated by your, your colonizers. This is how I yeah. feel it. Like, and yeah, that is what I mean, it is. Oh my God. Like, and we we refuse to let go of this whole British system. 
even though the British don't, I don't think the British follow this the, this system. I'm not sure anymore. But for some reason, we have so much difficulty to just kind of let kids kind of you know learn in the culture that they are, that they live in, that they grow up in, and to assess in this very sort of like natural way and a way that's valid because it doesn't mean anything that Cambridge is giving us this is assessing our learning or like dictating what we learn. But this is what's happening at secondary level. We're still, oh my god. So suddenly so now I'm like getting mad again. But don't do that because really you have to go rest after this. So don't get mad. Oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, I think like, that's valid yeah. right there. Not expecting yeah. that validation to come from outside, that building oh. building up from inside. You guys, you have such a a wealth of resources of knowledge of you know mm-hmm. people doing all sorts of things and that's every place has that you know every place mm-hmm. has a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of wonderful resources within the space um, whether that mm-hmm. just be within the people or if that's within you know other resources that are available and I think that if, when you build on that then mm-hmm. that's when you're truly rich you're building on mm-hmm. what you have instead of yeah. expecting validation from elsewhere because that validation yeah. is never is never adequate my god I feel like I'm just praying for, you know, for the day when we finally like, okay, we're ready to just evaluate ourselves and to be happy with how we see ourselves without having this yeah. piece of paper from yeah, from Cambridge. Thank you for taking a moment for being here, for just sharing your insights about your, your own cultural linguistic experience. I appreciate mm. that you took the time out to do this. Well, you're welcome. And <laughs> it was really fun to just talk. Thanks for tuning in to The Culture We Speak. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our guest, Dr. Tolfis. Our sponsor, React Initiative, Inc., has partnered with the Roman Catholic Education Authority, Rodrigue, to promote equitable access to education for Rodriguean youth. To learn more or to donate in support of these efforts, visit iReact.org.